What's up, family? Thank you for tuning into another episode of With the Facts with Mariel. And of course, I am Mariel. And as I say every single week, I'm grateful that you are here and that you are tuned in and that you are listening. Here on the podcast, if you're new, uh, we talk about everything. There's no topic that's off limits from politics to race to religion. Um, We talk about it all. But the biggest thing that we do and that is a requirement is when you come to the podcast, you come with the facts. And so today, I'm really excited about today's episode because I had the opportunity to sit down with my friend, Myra Randall, who I call the walking theologian. And we really unpack this idea of white Jesus in the black church. Of course, we all have had these introspective um, moments now, of course, with Black Lives Matter really being pushed to the to the forefront. Uh of rethinking some things and really looking, taking a hardcore look at how white supremacy has integrated in so many different, so many different ways within our country. And it's really almost embedded into the very fabric of America. And one of the ways that I wanted to look at that was this narrative of white Jesus, but not just white Jesus, but how it has affected the black church. Because as I try to say all the time, and I really will preach it from the mountaintops, is that you do not have to be white in order to push and um, perpetuate white supremacist ideologies. And so Myron and I really look at it and unpack some things and how we've seen this play out. And so I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Thank you all for all the love and support that you've given me in the in the podcast. So many of y'all have written and saying that you've enjoyed the episode. So I am super, super grateful to you. So without further ado and delay, sit back, relax, and let's dive into today's episode. And today I'm really excited because I have my friend Myron here, who I call the walking theologian. So anytime I need to like bounce ideas or anything. (laughs) (laughs) So anytime I need to know anything about theology or anything, I just like Myron, I got a question. So today we're actually going to be talking about white Jesus and the black church. But before we, we can't talk about the black church without really um, paying homage and honor to two um, civil rights icons that we lost in a day. Yeah. Um, and that's C.T. Vivian and John Lewis. So Myron, what are what are some things and how have they impacted you um, just kind of like seeing their story and their journey and their impact? Like how they- Oh my gosh, both of them are heroes. Uh, they are true American heroes. I was reading the eulogy that Barack Obama wrote for C.T. Vivian uh, and the first line of it is this modern American father that he reshaped American the American landscape in so much that he is now one of the fathers of America. Uh, and so they're both just heroes. You know, I was thinking about this year in general and thinking, boy, this is a bit of a shit show. Uh-huh. And it had to be the Holy Ghost uh, because I thought about it. It's not a shit show. It's a shift show, right? That things are changing. Yeah. Uh, and you know, when an earthquake happens, it's the shifting of tectonic plates and it is because of pressure that's been built up under the crust of the earth, right? And that pressure is released and then ultimately it reverberates through the plates and we feel the earthquake. And I think that's what we're feeling right now. We are just feeling the earthquake from the pressure that's already been underneath society with this pandemic, with this racial uprising and then the death of some of our heroes, right? It's transition. It's yeah. shifting. Uh, and an old friend of mine, I think it was Carlton Pearson, told me this. He said, whenever there's a shifting in heaven, there's a sifting on earth. 
Wow. And so some of the folks that you thought would be with you aren't with you anymore because the transition has happened and they've got to go on to the new thing. And that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Our civil rights heroes, I love them, but they did their work and they've transferred the baton onto us. And it's up to us to take the shift and run around and do the work that they taught us to do and gave us an example on how to do so. Yeah. Shout out to those heroes. Absolutely. I think for me, it is... So I think I was on Twitter last night, you know, as the news was breaking, it was like early this morning, like around midnight and somebody on Twitter wrote, they were like, I feel devastated that they left this world and we're still fighting the same fight. Like we, we're not over that hump yet. And so now our generation, like you were saying, have, we have to take the baton and run with it. And I was just thinking about that, like these men who, like you're saying, reshaped America um, John Lewis, who was yeah. beaten within an inch of his life, like yeah. on that on the um, Edmund Pettus Bridge, and just and I'm like, and we're still doing it. They were showing footage um, last night on the news as they were talking about his life, and they uh, were showing the white officers beating the protesters. Mm -hmm. It looks like a scene from 2020. Isn't that crazy? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, we're still there. What? That's why it was so valuable to us. They had this collective memory of what happened. Exactly. This looks like they can point out and say that's what it looks like. Exactly. So I it's been a rough year just with everything. And like I said, we're losing um a lot of our giants and generals, but I think it's our responsibility to stand on their shoulders and keep fighting, keep going, keep doing right. it, keep protesting, just keep going. Um, you know, so and I think that ties in perfectly because with kind of what our topic is about today. Listen, I'm geeked to talk about this because this is because <laughs> then let me say this: like I knew I wanted you on the podcast at some point, and I was like, but it's got to be a, the it's got to be like the most amazing topic. So when I thought it, I was like, there, there it is. That's it. This topic here. That's what I need to talk to him about. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm not the best theologian. I just Google faster than everybody else. That's all it please, is. Please. <laughs> My fingers you are like walking theologian. If I need like a reference or a book, <laughs> I'm like, Myron, I need some books on da 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 da. Oh yeah, just read this, 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 this. Like, great, thank you. <laughs> I Google fast. That's all it is. I Google fast. So we're talking about white Jesus and the black church, but I think before we can do that, we gotta back it up because as we were talking about it, it starts before the church. It starts before all of this. And we really need to define whiteness yeah. um, and how that has become the standard and, and all of that. So kind of break down for me, what whiteness means um, for you before we take it a turn and move it to the church. Absolutely. So I, when thinking about whiteness, so first I, I want to say this, I think whiteness has existed way before America. I think we get a name for it in America. Uh, in particularly, we get a name for it in James Cone's uh, Black Power and Black Theology book. Uh, we get this idea and this concept of whiteness, but I think the concept of whiteness has existed for a long time. I think we see the concept of whiteness in the first murder that ever happens in human society when Cain kills Abel because he offers a sacrifice that is subpar to his. Uh, and instead of learning from his brother, he assassinates his brother. I think that's the definition of whiteness. Whiteness, and, and if I could give it aspects, I would say it is defined by superiority, where you think you are the top of the food chain and anything else that attacks your superiority 
um, is less than or should be victimized or should be killed or assassinated because it comes against you as the superior. I think that's a definition of whiteness. I think weaponization of that superiority, just like Cain killed Abel, I think whiteness kills folks that it thinks attack its superiority. Um, we see weaponization happen in all kinds of ways. I'm thinking about that lady who called the cops on the kids in the park for barbecuing in the park. That's weaponization. That's saying, I know the law better than you. I've never done this this way. And so I weaponize what I know, my superiority against you. That's weaponization. Um, and, and it's like, again, it has existed before America. I'm thinking about Jesus when they bring that woman who was caught in the very act of adultery to Jesus. And they say, the law says that she be stoned. What say you? They are weaponizing the law against that woman. And what Jesus does is remarkable. He gets in the ground and starts writing in the dust. And we don't know what he wrote. Uh, but as he was writing, all of her accusers just begin to walk away. Hmm. The old preacher used to say, Jesus was writing Jimmy and Janet, <laughs> Matthew and Margaret, right? He was writing down the fact that you two are guilty of the same thing that you're accusing this woman of, and yet you have weaponized the law against her when it should be applied universally against you all. Uh, and slowly those accusers walked away, and he asked this woman, where are your accusers? And she's like, they're all gone. And he says, well, you know what? I don't condemn you either. Go and send no more. That's whiteness. And then Jesus teaches us how to be anti-whiteness and how to forsake that privilege when you learn to put people on an equal playing field. So that's that's the definition of whiteness. I think there's some more. I think there is dehumanization. When you try to dehumanize people and you then set yourself up for idealization where you are the ideal and then yeah. you need to follow this, you need to follow that. And I always try to separate whiteness as a concept from white people. But the problem is most white people were born into the concept, so they can't separate themselves. No. No. And, and in that, I think that there has been, in whiteness, they completely hijacked Jesus, right? Yes. So, yes. <laughs> they completely hijacked Jesus where it's, it's become, because we consider ourselves to be the standard, we're going to make Jesus in our image. And that's what we were talking about before we started. We're going to create Jesus in our image because we believe that we are, the whiteness is the standard. And so, and, and I said this on a previous episode, and because they have been the dominant voices for theology, for preaching, for conferences, for books, not because they are superior, just because they have greater access, they have greater opportunity, right? Um, we've believed it. And I feel like that has definitely infiltrated the black church. I was telling you before we started that when I thought about this topic, the first thing I thought about was that episode of Good Times where Florida has this picture yes. of white Jesus, right? Yes. <laughs> she has this picture of white Jesus hanging up in the apartment and JJ, who is an artist, draws a black Jesus and mm -hmm. he wants to hang that. And she comes home and I think it was hung in the part. And she was like, what is this? She thought it was complete blasphemy. Um, and her younger son, Michael, is trying to educate her mama. Jesus was black man. So, and they're having this whole discussion and she could not let that image go because that's what 
had been ingrained in her. That's what she was raised with. And it was, that's Jesus. Like, this is who he, this is who he is. This is what he looks like. And how dare we try to change that narrative? So let's kind of talk about how the appearance of white Jesus, in your personal opinion, has affected the black church. Because when I think about that scene, I think about a woman who is seeing herself as less than because that has that's the person she's committed her life to, but he doesn't oh. look like her. <sighs> so it always she will always be subservient. So anybody that does look like Jesus, she will always be subservient to them because she does not see herself in the person that's hanging on the wall, though she's committed her life to him. Does that make sense? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you feel like just the appearance of white Jesus has affected um, the black the black church experience, black Christians and all of that? Listen, I, I'm going to answer it, but can we step back one quick second yeah. time of good times? Because in 1974, yes. they were sitcoms on CBS. It was good times at one time, and it was the Brady Bunch at the other time. And if you notice, they had parallel existence but two different existences right really totally pointing out different. the fact that there are two different americas yeah. the brady bunch was happy and they had easy go lucky problems you know marcia got hit in the face with a football right <laughs> wow jj in florida and jimmy uh was struggling to survive exactly right and the, and the funny part is the they kept saying ain't we lucky we got them good times they were lucky for the fact that they were struggling to survive, but that's neither here nor there. That's not what the topic is. Let me, let's talk about white Jesus. Let's talk about white Jesus. So, you know, I think the problem with white Jesus and with whiteness in Christianity is that we have said Jesus is divine. And rightly so, Jesus is divine. And when we said Jesus is divine, whiteness said, well, if Jesus is divine, Jesus must look like me because I'm superior. And so they painted Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes, suggesting that this is what divinity looks like. And so when you worship, you need to worship this because divinity is, in the, is synonymous to blonde hair and blue eyes. And you bring that to the black church where folks have submitted their subsequence to this blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. And now if it doesn't look white, it's definitely not right. And that reverberates through society because now we want the people to lead us, that lead us to look like that Jesus, to look blonde haired and blue eyes. And so the white church, the black church thinks it's subpar to the white church, that its worship experience is subpar, that its theological expression is subpar. Uh, matter of fact, there are even theologians today that suggest that black theology or theology developed by black people are subpar than the theology that's been expounded on by white people, right? That's a, a modern dilemma in a modern discussion right now that black people are too emotional in their worship expressions because it doesn't look like the white church's expression of worship. And it's all because we decided that power or divinity looked like white and we painted Jesus with blonde hair and with blue eyes. And now that's what we look up to as leadership. That's what we look up to as divine when in actuality, that's not divine at all. Uh, we were talking about this earlier, and if I'm jumping ahead, you just you know shut me down. Um, we were talking about this earlier that I, I'm I'm thinking my thoughts right now are on the idea of incarnation that God becomes a man that divinity wraps himself up in humanity 
uh, so that he can come and redeem humanity. Uh, but the, the power of the idea of the incarnation is that Jesus is pre-existent. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. He was there from the very beginning. Jesus is pre-existent, meaning that when God made man, Jesus was present. That's why it says, let us make man in his image. He saw when man was created and when humanity was put together. And so when he comes down to humanity, it's not for humanity to identify with him. Mm -hmm. It is for him to identify humanity yeah. and to show humanity what it is supposed to look like and what it's supposed to be purpose is supposed to make that was horrible English. But what his purpose is supposed to be. He's like, I saw you when you were formed and when you were created. And now I've come to show you what that formation looks like. We weren't made to put God in our image. We're supposed to be in the image of God. Right. Oh my gosh. And I think that's the problem. I think we're too obsessed with the, with what God looks like as opposed to who God is. And, yes, and, yes. and that has disrupted so much stuff. Um, I think I was having a conversation with my mom the other week and I, I forgot what we were talking about, but I remember I made this statement. I was like, anytime you don't see yourself represented, you will always think that you're less than what is represented. Mm -hmm. Like what is the dominant thing that's represented? And I was like, you have a lot of people who are of color, black, brown, indigenous. I was like, who they don't see themselves represented, whether it be on TV. And I was like, even in our churches in a lot of ways. Um, and and that will always make you feel inferior, though that's not God's intention because God took time. God created you. Mm -hmm. You have God's breath in you. But because the narrative has been dominated so much. And let me say this, too, because you said something about um, there is uh, this uh, this idea that, you know, black worship and black theology is, you know, subpar to. Absolutely. It really isn't because I'm, I'm going to say this. It's it's up par because we we own that. But when they take it, when whiteness takes it, then it becomes it becomes acceptable. You see this a lot in culture. Yeah. Um, I really want to call names. I'm not going to do it. But there's a particular pastor. No problem. Be free. There's a particular. Pa I'm gonna be. I, I'm just gonna say it. So because I actually did. Um, uh, we have an episode on the podcast that was called White Fragility in the Church. And we were talking about mm -hmm. white evangelicals and how they're handling all of this, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter. And it's just been wrong. And one of the clips that I showed was Rod Parsley telling black and brown people they needed to stop being bitter. And that, you know, our forefathers were of the country were great. He's one of them for me. Um, because you're it's typical, it was a typical example of what whiteness is because when you look at the model of his church, it is totally gentrification of the black church experience. It is, it really is. Period. It really so is. So for you to stand up there and then tell people whose culture you gentrify and they have trusted you, right? So you know you got black people that is a part of the church, all of that. They've trusted you. And then for you to get up there and tell them they need to stop being bitter because they're angry at how they are being treated in the culture and how police are brutalizing them and how people that look like them keep having to deal with injustice. Huh? 
first off, that's ridiculous. One is this idea that when white takes it, it's right. And that's right. that's association with the divine, right? So, oh, if we give it to white hands, it becomes better because now it's divine. Exactly. When in actuality, all of us are stamped with divinity. He made us all in his image, right? So we've got right. the, the, the term is the imago dei. We've got that all stamped on us, whether you black, brown, purple, green, yellow, whatever color you are, you're stamped with the imago dei. Uh, and we have said that nope, the only people stamped with the image of God is white. And because of that, we now give it to white people and it, begin, it gets better. Yeah, it becomes acceptable. Not, I think in whiteness, you're not saved until we tell you that you are. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You see that a lot with mission work, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we went over and these people had never, we gave them Jesus. We gave them God. We, what? <laughs> like, I always tell people it's a difference between Americanized Jesus and then there's the real Jesus. Because when you go to other parts of the world, all of this foolishness that we see a lot of times with Americanized Christianity doesn't really exist. You bought your um, version of Christianity over Exactly, there. exactly. Um, yep. So I will say this, like in regards to the appearance of Jesus, I think it's super important that what we see early on really shapes us. And I'm an example of that. So I was blessed enough that my parents were able to put me in um, small private Christian schools, probably from like K4 all the way up to maybe sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And I distinctly remember in my fourth grade class, we had a picture of Jesus um, on the wall, but Jesus was a black man and had dreads and Jesus had abs. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like Ooh, that's the picture I need of Jesus with abs. Maybe I can change my life. Remember, like they showed different phases of Jesus, like him with ropes around his hands, like as he's you know about to go be crucified, and that's all I remember seeing. And and then thinking about what I was taught about the sons of Noah, and how really Ham that wasn't a curse, as a lot of people have taught it. It was a blessing, and so I was given that type of theology. Um, and so it shaped me early on where anytime I saw anything that didn't marry what I had already seen, I rejected it I because I was like, that's not, no, like even to the point, and me and my mom were talking about this the other night. Uh, I was like, mommy, did I, I was like, I, I remember distinctly. I didn't like playing with white dolls, not because I thought they were bad, but just because they didn't look like me and I couldn't appreciate it because I was like, I don't get. I don't have blonde hair. I don't have blue mm -hmm. eyes. So even playing with a baby doll, that didn't make sense to me because everything else in my world, I had been taught that I was beautiful. I had been taught that God loves me. I had been taught that Jesus was a person of color. And so I wasn't inferior in any kind of way. So I think early on having those images really helped shape my, um, me being proud of the color that I was in. That doesn't mean that I hated other races. I it just it. means that I loved who I was. And I think that's been part of the problem. With who you were. Exactly. Exactly. So I think about even our kids being indoctrinated so early on. And, and sometimes we don't even realize they're indoctrinated because we rely on a system that was created by whiteness to have to educate them on who they are. And they don't really know who they are. And, it, mm -hmm. and, it, and I I think about how blessed I was in that regard because I didn't have to unlearn anything. Like it just, 
any education was an adding on. But a lot of people have to unlearn stuff because they never were exposed to you matter. And this is what the real truth is. It's yeah. like, <laughs> right. Yep. So I don't know. I just I just feel like. Go ahead, Martin. You heard of this concept called the, the paradigm of the possible? No. So this is this idea that so life is filled with paradigms, which is like a pattern to follow. Right. And so I follow this. If I want to be a doctor, I follow the pattern. I go to this school. I go to this. I do this. I do this. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm a doctor. Right. But that also is a racial paradigm in some way. When you don't see images of yourself in places of power and places of prestige, you destroy the paradigm of the possible and you lose the fact that I can follow that pattern and become great in that way. So the problem of white Jesus is this, that for black people, it interrupts that paradigm and we don't think we can operate in the space of the divine because the divine does not look like us. And the only way to get there is to forsake who we are yeah. to become that, to make it to what that paradigm is. Whew. Does that make sense? Is, I, I, I want to make sure if I'm saying it clearly and plain. It makes so much sense. Oh my gosh. You gotta see black people in places of prestige in power because you can say, I can do that because he did it. Absolutely. <laughs> to know that there's a whole generation of kids who don't think now that them becoming president of the United States of America is impossible because exactly. they think. Exactly. Wow. That's why my mom and your mom and, and folks from the generation before of us cry every time they think of Barack Obama. Yeah. Because they think, boy, we didn't think that was possible. <laughs> Exactly. And even down to when we are in leadership. So I'm going to just take black pastors, for example, because um, this actually happened. Uh -oh. I was a part of a church that this happened. At. Um, the black pastor was very smart, very incredible teacher. Right. Anybody would, should be wanting to follow him because he's just he's just brilliant. He really mm -hmm. is. But he felt that he needed to throw away everything related to black culture. We're not gonna say, now you're a black man, but not celebrate black culture because I really wanna focus on becoming a multicultural church. What? Even for me, that's whiteness, that I have to completely abandon who I am in order for you to follow me so you are more comfortable. I have to adapt to this mode. Horrible. It was horrible and people were offended because it was a predominantly black church. So it's like, so wait, you want us to not acknowledge Black History Month. You want us to not dress in African attire and things and celebrate that because we need to welcome, we want to be a multicultural church. So we need to do away with that. Side note, I put on my dashiki today since we were talking about whiteness <laughs> and blackness. I want to celebrate. <laughs> Black culture, but I do have a comment. Can I tell you this story? So in college, I went to a, a, a predominant institution, but it was a Christian college. I went to Old Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. God bless you, Oregon. Uh, but um, the biggest trouble I ever got into uh, in college was we had this multicultural lunch uh, after chapel, and the speaker was there, and uh, the speaker who spoke in chapel, and he was, you know, they invited some key people. Uh, and the whole discussion was this idea of God is colorblind, which I think is the biggest crock that I've ever heard in my life. God is colorblind. And so I knew I had to say something about it. I was a rebel all my life, right? I had to, I had to say something. Uh, and so we had these little group discussions at our table. And then 
we had a spokesman from each table get up and talk about what we shared. And so I volunteered and I knew, I knew I was about to, you know, fly into a harness nest. So I got up and I said, you know, we sat at our table and we discussed the fact that God is colorblind, but I disagree with that. I think it's an insult to God to call God colorblind. Yes. Because after all, when I walk outside, I realize that God made the green grass. He made the sky blue. He made flowers purple, orange, and yellow, and in all of the various colors of the rainbow. Matter of fact, he created the rainbow. And he created you and I in the colors that he wanted us to be in. It's an insult to God to call him colorblind. And I said, it's not that God is colorblind, it's just that he's not prejudiced. Ooh. And the whole place, I could see their eyes just <laughs> shift and look at me crazy because it was an affront to them. Yeah. Because the truth of the matter is they've got prejudice. They prefer one color as opposed to the other. We shouldn't whitewash all of our existence. God made us as we are to be who we are. Exactly. And that's who we should be. Exactly. And that, don't insult God by whitewashing it. And that colorblind comment, you hear that often because there is, there is this obsession, I think, especially in those white evangelical spaces and just with whiteness, period, to mm -hmm. separate the body from the soul. And I think you talked about this before, oh, yeah. which is I care more about, and I think I saw somebody write this, I think maybe on Twitter, they said white evangelicals typically care more about you going to heaven than dealing with the, dealing with the hell that you have on earth. Like that what you are packaged in, your body is not important to me, but I care about your soul. But my thing is, how do I separate? I should, I have to care enough about the soul to care about the body that the Absolutely. soul is in. Like, Absolutely. And like, the funny part is when you think about it. So first off, the, the obsession with heaven over earth is a problem because yeah. the first words we ever see in the Bible, first words in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes. God is the author of both. And so why would I forsake something that God authored yes. when he authored both the heavens and the earth? And then if you want to take it a step further, this forsaking of the body, the Bible says, Genesis 2, that God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into him and made him a living soul. So if you want to look at the order of things, God made the body before he put the soul in the body. So you've got to care for the body which God authored just as much as you care for the breath of God that he put inside of it. Yes. Both of them are of divine creation. And when you exactly. separate the two, you ignore the fact that God created both of these things. Oh my gosh. And even the scripture that we love quoting all the time, which is, you know, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, if my body is the temple in which we believe that the Holy Spirit is indwelling in, you should care enough about that my body is being bruised and beaten God. unjustly. You should care because I'm housed, I am housing the Holy Spirit that resides in me. You so why would you not care about the body that is in? I don't even like the concept just never it never connects for me. Isn't that a problem thinking about those pictures we talked about earlier of, of the white policeman beating John Lewis? Yes. You would not go into a synagogue or to a temple and start breaking the stained glass windows. But that's exactly what's happening in those pictures, right? The temple of God is being destroyed. Oh, my God. It's, we're throwing rocks at the temple. We're putting yes. fire on the temple. 
Yes. Isn't that a problem? When you think of it in those terms, when you realize that the divine created my body just as he created my soul? Yes. That we can't separate the two? And they can't be separated. They and can't be separate. But I think the, the goal is to separate them because it releases me from personal accountability mm -hmm. and cultural accountability. I think, um, so Myron and I are part of the faith community, which is a church here in Atlanta. Really great oh, church. Faith community. <laughs> And we um, we did something on Thursday called Real Talk, and we were talking about the sin of individualism. I saw it; it was amazing. And My that mom was called me afterwards. Like that was so good. <laughs> <laughs> Which we love, Mama Randall. Um, and so that was one of my arguments. It's there is this stripping away of responsibility culturally as a collective. Because we feel like, well, you know, I didn't do it. And I see that a lot with, oh, but I don't see color. Oh, but I don't see. No, stop. Like, no, you have to, like, we all have to take responsibility for when we've done things individually and when we've done things as a collective. And that's part of my issue is there's never any accountability and responsibility for when I'm telling you this has been harmful this is damaging this hurts me as a black person as a person of color in this country and you want to tell me well i don't see color mm -hmm. but we have systems that and your ancestors created that did and it's like, it's like it is harmful and i'm telling you that it's harmful and you're not listening and even if and this is what i was saying on thursday even if you don't believe what your ancestors did or like when I say did, I mean like you don't believe in what they, um, the enslavement of people, or you don't believe in treating people in that way. It is your job as a part of their lineage to make it right. You got it. You know, I just had a thought, and you know, I'm, you know, I, I like the Bible a lot, and so I dwell in these. This is, you know, I think theologically. I don't know, if, but I'm that's why you walk in theologian. I, told you. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a thought. So can we add also to the definition of whiteness the refusal to take responsibility? Ooh. And if that's the case, the first act of whiteness is not Cain killing Abel. It's when Adam starts to blame Eve for the oh fall God. of man. Right? When the patriarchy too. Exactly. That's <laughs> the definition of patriarchy and whiteness. When, when God confronts Adam and says, hey, you ate of this tree that you weren't supposed to eat of. He says, well, no, it was the woman you gave me. Right that brought this to me, this no, refusal to take responsibility is also with whiteness and patriarchal and, and the start of this whole superiority complex that, that comes in the society. And I think that marries to when when um, they bit of the tree and uh, the apple, people mm -hmm. say it's the apple, it may not have been, well, but you know, whatever. And God is looking for them. And yep. he doesn't, he, and this, I've had arguments with men on this, Myron, like for real. Uh -oh. I said, when God comes searching for them, whose name does he call first? He says, Adam, uh -huh. where are you? You got it. Like he didn't say where Eve is. He said Adam because he was the one that was responsible. So like God, this is, this is on your shoulders. This is, this is, this is on you. You I'm got like, it. You could have said no. I don't care. You got it, right? <laughs> like you could have said no. So I think that that also marries to 
when Jesus is saying, take care of the least of these that are among you and, and Jesus or it, this illustration is given where um, he was like, when I was thirsty, you didn't get like as you do to the least of these. Like, and so we have this idea of what being divine and what being spiritual really means. But we've missed the boat on, the, on what God really said. Right, because we think being spiritual means being in charge, being, oh means being in control, right? That yeah. it's, it's operating from the top of the food chain. Yeah. But remember, God came to be with us. Another theological term, right? So Philippians 2 and 5 says that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yeah. uh, but became humbled himself even unto the yeah. point of death, right? Yeah. So he, he shows us that the divine, uh, the definition of the divine is humility. It's this emptying of self. It's a theological term called kenosis, the emptying of the self, right? Right. That, that's what divinity Ooh. looks like. Oh it's not God. being in charge. It's being with those who are marginalized and those who are less fortunate than us. Exactly. So, yeah. And, and then exactly. bringing them up with you. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's the key. Um, and this has been one of my issues um, with uh, this that's been going on that I've been seeing with, you know, white evangelicals and these performative acts. Oh, um, oh and God. there have been several. So I'm just gonna call a few of them out. I'm yeah. just in the, I'm not, I'm in the season of I just gotta I gotta call people out. Then, yeah, do it. So right? Right. Some of my favorites have been recently Bethel Church. I don't know what type of service they oh, were. My God. Listen, can I tell you I'm so embarrassed by that because I know the girl who was up there. Oh my god. Oh Lord, have what the hell was that foolishness? <laughs> um oh my god. I was I was I, I but watch but watch who they allowed to dominate the conversation. It was the two minorities that were standing up there. Yes. I want to say this minorities should not have to solve a problem that they did not that they didn't create that's not our responsibility you saw the whole video that was so anticlimactic which shows that black worship is not subpar in any way they didn't even have an organ or nothing they didn't give us no music at the end of it at least in the black church when we put the the staff down we would have had an organ rumble or something like that. we would have felt some shockwave and they were just hollering, amen. I'm like, what the hell is this? this? It was terrible. And not just that, but I think somebody pointed out that they were quoting Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings. That's what, and I was like, what? What in heaven's name? And then somebody started bringing comparisons that between um, sorcery and prayer. And I, I, yeah. Which anyway. Was, I mean, they were literally quoting an act of sorcery in Lord of the Rings. Literally, Gandalf was a warlock. <laughs> so for me, it's this this uh, slip, this slamming down of a stick to say, okay, racism is over. Again, accountability, trying to remove accountability of doing the work that it takes. And, and I always tell people, it's going to cost you something. Yeah, it's going to hurt. And they don't want it to cost. They just like, okay, well, I just want to say that... Um, I believe Black Lives Matter, but yeah. I'm still I'm still not going to make room for voices that um, of color to be at the table. But I want to say that Black Lives Matter, and my staff is still going to be all white. I still I'm going to say I'm going to say Black Lives Matter, but 
I'm not going to lend my platform to anybody except they, if they look like me. Absolutely. Like it's, it's, it's so performative. It's a problem. All these companies putting out statements saying black lives ladder, like black people just started existing. <laughs> they just and got some is, cash. That's right. what, you and this is what got Andy Stanley in trouble because he posted, and I talked about this on a previous episode when he posted this, um, this elegy to George Ford. To, Correct. Uh, and he was, yes. Yeah, he was comparing him to modern day Samson. And he was saying mm-hmm. that George Floyd's last breath was his invitation and white people's invitation. Well, I took a lot of issue with that because I'm like, so what were you doing before George Floyd? Because he ain't the first one. Yeah, because this is your invitation? <laughs> we got bodies. Like, it's 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 a whole... Till was killed. Was that not your invitation? Right. It's like, so what were you doing? Yeah, so we got to appreciate your awakening. <laughs> Is that what we doing? Basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I posted this, I think, on Twitter. I'm a big Twitter person, so y'all can follow me there. But um, I just, any Wait, random thought. Huh? What's your Twitter handle? I'm, I'm sure they already know, but I feel like that's a commercial. Oh, Ed, I am Mary LT. And I put, uh, I'll put it in the show notes, too. But um, I was, now I just forgot what I was about to say. I think... Oh, that's what it, sorry, it comes back. Uh, on Twitter. I'm getting old, y'all. So my, my, my brain cells just sometimes. Um, I was saying that some Black people are so desperate to be acknowledged in those white evangelical spaces that they take performative acts as progress. And it's not. Mm-hmm. It's, um, not. It's, it's not. And and that's what I was, that's what we were talking about er- earlier, how you see yourself. Yep. Because if you see yourself having value, that won't be enough. You got it. I agree. That you won't your be life is being more, that's not going to be enough. You got it. And the funny part, I'm going back to Bethel. So they were, this was supposed to mimic this apostolic decree to declare racism is over, right? The whole idea of an apostle is that they found something, that they do something, they create something, right? Their decree is followed by action. Uh-huh. And so if you really want to be a real apostle, why don't you make your decree, slam your stick, and then create some edicts that help people live differently than they're living right now. Absolutely. Whew. A false apostolic work, right? Is one based on a decree and not based on action. Yes. That's, I have to tell you, that's my favorite one thus far. Mm-hmm. Like, because the whole thing was just. It was bizarre. It was really bizarre. Bizarre, you know? But you know what? now that I think about it, they've been doing this kind of stuff for years. You remember the foot washing service with the Church of God? Yeah. The Assembly of God and the Church of God in Christ, where they were crying and washing their feet and, and apologizing and all this kind of stuff. But here, years later, we still have issues right. <laughs> that are racially based. That's, that also defines to me what whiteness is it's not listening to the people who are being marginalized and who who are then they're telling you what it will take to get it done for you dictating to them what you think is going to make them feel better. Yeah, listen, I'm going to just wash your feet. That's what I'm going to do. That's That's, it. I'm, I'm going to wash your feet. That's This is what we're going to do for you. We didn't ask you to do none of that. None of it. We didn't need that. Not, not an ounce. Like, I, saw a video, I saw a video of there's this black family, I don't know if you've seen this, this black family standing in front of all of these white people and all the white people are on their knees asking this black family for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not and, seen 
I'll sit back and find it because I heard the send it to you. Um, and they're like, God, we pray for forgiveness and how we have treated black people. Da, da, da. And I was like, get up. And I need like, I don't need this. Like, I'm just being honest. Like, I me personally, I probably would have walked off because I okay. you're doing this to make yourself feel better. But we're communicating to you what needs to happen, what we do expect, what how you can contribute, how you can leverage your whiteness in spaces, right? Like we 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 we're teaching you and trying to educate you, but you keep trying to do stuff like this to tell us make yourself feel better, but thinking it's gonna make us feel better, and it's not. Yeah, we need your allyship. We need your voice. We need you to speak yes. advocacy, right? Yes. We need to be brought up to the table. We need you to teach us what you know that's different than what we know, right? Like. We don't need like, you to I would tell people to me a big part of allyship is your your the main part of your job is to address people who look like you and to call them out on it. Exactly. Not dictating, no, 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 uh turn that same energy, but to people who look like you and to call them out on it. You got it. Like, nope, this is a performative act. You shouldn't be doing this. Correct. Maybe so if we you, listen to this person. Go ahead. Yeah. No, you're right on. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna, so we've been seeing this a lot in 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 um, evangelical spaces, but I think even in some black church spaces, um, because they they just don't know how to demand better. And I think black people, black people, brown people, indigenous people, um, I think we are always expected to give a grace that we rarely receive. Right. So so even in the midst of all of this. We're still being gracious. We're still being, you know, um, even in, I've watched some conversations that some black pastors have had with white pastors. Mm -hmm. And I was like, eh, you could have pushed them just a little bit, but I think we still are like, no, no, it's okay. And it's like, I don't know. We, we, we black people sometimes, especially in religious spaces, I think we coddle whiteness. Mm -hmm. too much. Can I say something that's probably, and people are going to disagree with me in this, but this is an in the moment thought. Sometimes guilt is a good thing because guilt causes you not to act the way that offended somebody else uh, in the past. So if I feel guilty, that guilt pressure causes me not to do that shit again. And so maybe we need to let white people sit with the guilt for a little bit. So they realize that, look, my performative measure is not going to affect anything. I need to do something different so that I get a different outcome. And what black forgiveness does is it releases the guilt. So they no longer have the pressure to perform differently and to do differently. So yeah. go ahead and sit with the guilt. Absolutely. Let's sit with those images. Let that resonate in your spirit and in your being. So you say, I never want that to happen again. Yeah, and I and a part of me though, um, and I try to be hopeful, and and I, I know that there are people who are very intentional, and I've had several white people who I've been connected with, whether it be professionally or you know any other way, reach out and just you know say you know what can I do, and and some people, it depends on the day for me. Like some days I'm too exhausted to even try to educate. I'm just being honest. I'm like, yo, so I've, I've gotten in the habit of giving homework. Um, I found this really great list of material that somebody had curated to give to anytime that question is asked to you by somebody who's white to give oh, them. We need to put that in the show notes or on the screen. <laughs> yes. 
because I need to be, that. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's this card and just right. <laughs> do this. That's your homework. Just take that. Um, so, but there are times where I do respond, and for me, it's it's. I see that there is, I think, some genuineness there to try to do better, but I think where the where it becomes uncomfortable is because it will cost something for them, and so we see all of these, you know, pastors are coming out and they're doing these sermons and they're doing these panels. Oh, yeah, we we're talking about you, Jensen Franklin, where you're doing these panels on race. And then you turn right around and then do something stupid, <laughs> like yeah. calling, comparing protesters out there marching for people's lives. And you're upset because the governor of California is saying we have realized that singing sprays and it perpetuates the um, the coronavirus. So we need y'all not oh. to do that. And then now comparing, saying that your rights are being violated. Well, first off, I, I think that is such surface religion. If you are offended by them trying to save lives from the coronavirus that you can't sing in church, you know what that means? That means you don't sing at home. That church is the only place that you can worship. What kind of God do you serve that only exists in your sanctuary? <laughs> because you can control it. I've always said that anytime pastors present that and they don't really educate people on that God is a God that is everywhere. So whether I'm in the building, whether I'm at my house, whether I'm the best church I have ever had has been in my car. Okay. My car. My <laughs> car. And you know what the, you know what that's saying, right? That's saying simply that they only serve them when they're in the sanctuary. So that's why they've got these double lives. So he can't exist outside my sanctuary because uh -huh. if he does, he's gonna see what I do when I'm not behind the stained glass. Or so, not yeah. behind the pulpit. Oh my God. And I was getting so frustrated with seeing that. Like, and here's again, um, what is the pastor's name? I think his Samuel Rodriguez. Is that his name? Yeah, um, yeah. He was he was another one. That was a perfect example of how you can be white. How you how you don't have to be white in order to perpetuate Latino, head of the Latino Church Association. Yeah, right? and he was on that same bandwagon. The protesters can be out there in the streets marching, and you don't say anything to them. But we want to come in the house of God and worship. And One, then they're outside, right, six feet apart, wearing masks, masks. <laughs> in a big old atmosphere, right? And you want to be in an enclosed space and thing like. These things do not equate. <laughs> and so many people were calling them out. But the people that I kept seeing that from were white evangelical pastors or people who run, who are of color, but run in those white evangelical spaces. Right. And so, that's what an allyship to be like, listen, Samuel, that's stupid. That's dumb. It's stupid. <laughs> like, don't shut your brain off when you come into the sanctuary. Don't get saved and stop thinking because that's exactly what you have done. Exactly. But I think that this is a good leeway. Like, have there been any things that you've seen in how um, the white Jesus theology has manifested itself in black church spaces or in spaces of color? Um, has there been anything from um, how white Jesus is perpetuated and how it has been taught that you see um, in spaces of color that have been adapted and that we need to shift and change. 
Listen, oh, this is gonna be oh boy. Let me, <laughs> take, uh, let me take a sip of water because I don't know what's about. Oh to God! You know what my biggest issue is right now with white Jesus is in our worship music. We have in the black church stopped writing worship music. We stop creating and pinning our own authentic expressions of worship, and what we've done is just taken with CCM and the white church has done changed the rhythm and the beat and said, this is gonna be good for us. And we feel as if it has elevated our worship experience because we've adapted what has been outside, put it in ours and put a different beat to it. When it used to be the other way, when they would take our stuff, redesign it and make it for their audiences. But we've switched the paradigm because yeah. we looked at that as superior and said, oh, that is so much better. Come on. When in actuality, it's just different. It's not better. And I'm not, I'm not hating on CCM. I'm not hating on those authentic expressions of worship because I like white worship music too. But I realize that there's also space for mine to exist exactly. in addition to theirs to exist. And a classic example, <clears throat> a black woman is... A black African woman, actually, I can't, I can't, I don't, can't, I always forget how to say her name, but she wrote Waymaker. Waymaker, like, you got it. Came a big hit because of her, but then when who is it? Michael W. Smith, I think he was the one that took it over. You would think he mm -hmm. wrote it because even in how he goes about things in interviews, and you know the gospel music industry, it's it is. It's very cutthroat. I would tell anybody that because it's very few spaces. It's very, it's like, it's intense. Yeah, because the listenership is not as high. So you don't have as much space to operate in it. Exactly. And so for me, I was like, how great uh, it would have been if an, if Michael W. Smith was an ally. And yeah. that every time he's interviewed about that song, oh, you know, that song was written by. Sinek, that's her name. Yeah, this, it was written by, and she's an incredible art, like pushing that, or maybe invite her to sing it when he sing it with him, because I mean he sells out like arenas, arenas, arenas. <laughs> I've seen him in concert at the Lakefront Arena in New Orleans. I mean, filled the whole doggone thing. I mean, and so even with what we see in CCM music and gospel music, it's it's vastly different worlds. Mm -hmm. Um. And so I think some of our artists may feel like, well, it was huge in CCM. So maybe I can see a, 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 a ounce of that success if I just take it and then change it and flip the beat. <laughs> Make it three, four instead of whatever, you know, <laughs> four, four instead of three, four. I don't know. <laughs> oh my God. But I think that's important too, is that we take, because music is the thing that people, even if they're not believers or even if they aren't, into church like that, music most times is the thing that will reach people first, typically. Oh, I, agree. I and, agree. And for us to not really dominate that space or to, like you're saying, write more of our music and that we get a little bit more in depth with theology in our music too. I yeah. will say that too. Yeah, so like, even with celebration theology. Yeah, we've got both got spaces. The acknowledgement that Yours doesn't have to exist in opposition to mine. That we both can have space and we both can sit at the table. Right? 
So how do you see it play out in regards to preaching moments? So do you feel like for the most part that if people are black pastors or brown pastors or, you know, of color, that do you see more that they have this identity of, you know, either black liberation theology and that they have a greater sense of, you know, seeing themselves and being able to preach that to their congregations? Or do you still see a lot of, of white Jesus influence within that preaching moment? Uh, it is so divided in the black pulpit, right? So you've got those who are authentically African-American in there. And I don't want to say African-American, I want to say authentically black mm-hmm. in their preaching expression. And then you've got those who've adapted to a system of whiteness and say, no, it's a sin problem, not a skin problem, right? Mm-hmm. That that want to spiritualize racism uh, and spiritualize actual practices uh, and not adjust things because they've adopted into a system of whiteness. Uh, it is so all over the map uh, with black preaching. And it's sad because the black church used to be the arbitrator of freedom for black people. <laughs> that was the voice. That was the cornerstone. That was the cornerstone, right? They would give us what freedom looked like and what freedom should be when we couldn't see it ourselves. It was that that hope that we needed to say that one day we will be free. And that's and pre integration. Yeah, and pre-integration, you we married Jesus and Justice together. Yes. All the time. We realized they were one and the same. Yes. You can't separate the two. Right? Uh Cornell West says, uh, justice is what love looks like with legs. Mm. <laughs> so you gotta marry the two. They don't escape one another. No. Oh my gosh. And so the, I, the preaching is so divided. It's so divided. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I so yeah, and I've seen different ones. Um, it frustrates me when I see black pastors so desperate to be on TBN. Like it bothers me. It like actually makes me itch. Um, because and I think about if anything, especially black churches, I really would love to see us be a collective more to create our own. Um, I agree. So we would not have to be desperate to be on TBN or even, unfortunately, the Word Network, because that's not black owned. Even though there's a lot of black people on the Word Network, it's not a black owned <laughs> network. Um, so to just see that collective, to educate people more, but I think sometimes how I feel like white Jesus has infiltrated those black church spaces is what you were saying that I have to be in charge. And we see that a lot in black church spaces where it's like, no, we need to be number one. No, we need to be number one on the block. So it's hard for us to really have partnerships with other churches. Cause think about what we could do. Like in Atlanta alone, we have several mega churches. Oh my like, God. That are black. <laughs> it's not my black. God, they're everywhere here in Atlanta. You just pop up. Like, I never knew this church was here, but they got 5,000 members. <laughs> so imagine what could happen. But I think that's to me a part of how the white Jesus construct has entered into black spaces, even just how we operate in our mentality. Because it creates competition between the two. Correct. And if we actually got on board with each other, like I see all these individual churches doing like community days where they're giving stuff out. What would happen if all the churches on that whole block connected? 
and decided mm-hmm. we're going to do a huge day for the entire community. How much further it could go? I am. Um, so, you know, Jesus said something. He said the children of the world are in their generation wiser than the children of light because we set up these own individual kingdoms as opposed to working as a collective. Yeah. I, I'm, I live in Henry County and Henry County has this nonprofit collective where all the nonprofits in Henry County get together once a month and they work on major issues in Henry County as a collective. So if you've got a food pantry and I've got a food pantry to save money, why don't we make sure you're open on Monday and Tuesday? I'm open on Wednesday and Thursday so everybody can take advantage of the food pantry and we're not duplicating our efforts. Right. So now I'm saving money because I'm not open five days a week. I'm only open three days a week or two days a week. And we're getting donations on Monday and Tuesday to your right. food bank and we're getting donations to my food bank on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Yeah. It, we're working together to solve an issue. And so if we came together as a church collective and said, we're going to work together to solve this issue, but that requires us having conversations that requires us forsaking our own ego, right? And saying that, Hey, I, here's the back to the theological term. It requires kenosis of us to empty ourselves, right? That we don't regard it to be equal with God, but submitting ourselves in a humble submission to one another. That's why the apostle Paul said, submit ye one to another. Right. Right. Let's have conversations and bridge the divide in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as we bring this kind of to a close, uh, what are some lasting words that you want to leave with people centered around, you know, white Jesus, black church, how we move forward from here? Uh, Here's the biggest thing. And this has been ringing in my head since we started that you don't need other voices to validate you. Uh, That you are as God made you to be. And your only validation is existing in the space and the place that God made you. You don't need somebody else to come and stamp you and say approve because God already did that when he breathed into you the breath of life. When he said, I'm going to make you in my image, that's how he meant you and that's how he made you. So don't look for other voices to validate you. Just look above and, and receive the voice of the divine saying that I made you. And when I made you, I said it was good. And so that's my thoughts. Yes. Oh, that's good. And mine would be um, Jesus and justice reside together. Um, and a Jesus that's voided of justice is 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 a counterfeit Jesus. <laughs> that's a white Jesus. That's a counterfeit. Like that's that ain't the real thing. That's the Lord built on a lie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Myron, if people, I don't know if you have a way, if people like, like, man, this dude is dope. I want to follow him or, oh, you know. Yeah. I post a lot, but feel free. Myron's photos on Instagram uh, and then Myron's tweets on Twitter. <laughs> so I try to make it easy. Perfect. <laughs> I like that, Myron's but I didn't really pay attention to that's what that was, how you set that up. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I'll put that in the show notes, too. Um, so Myron, thank you for you for this, having me. This has been just great. breaking this down. Like it's really good. Um, I made sense to everybody. I feel I like I'm too. <laughs> um, you know, so but I thank y'all for watching, and um, we'll definitely be back with more episodes and more content. So I'll catch y'all on the next episode. All right, bye, folks.